Welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. I am your host, Aaron Herber. This is a podcast about stories, myths, and the Catholic faith. Everybody, welcome to I Might Believe in Fairies. Uh, I have a very special guest, my all-time favorite author, um, Tim Powers, here with me, and we're going to chat a lot about his books and a lot of other cool stuff too. And uh, I'm going to let Tim introduce himself. Okay, uh, I'm Tim Powers, and I've uh, I had 17 novels published, all of which have been science fiction or fantasy. And in fact, nearly all of them have been fantasy. Um, I won the World Fantasy Award three times, and uh, that's probably enough. <laughs> Seventeen books. I didn't know it was that many. I don't. I haven't read them all. Um, well, a few people have probably. <laughs> um, yeah, that's. That's all. That's a lot. Um, that was also a cha- part of the challenge of coming up with questions because you have so many books, and I didn't. You know, I we can't go through every single book you've ever written and ask questions about them and discover all the hidden we'll, secrets in there. And <laughs> we'll be here forever. Yeah. Yeah. No. So that was part of the challenge um, for coming up with those questions. But I just want to thank you for coming on my show. And like I said, um, you are my favorite author. Um, oh, I think yikes. Tolkien probably has you beat, maybe, but. Um, <laughs> I'm overwhelmed. Well, yeah, you. I'm not. My, I'm not my favorite author. Well, who's your favorite author? That would be hard to say. Um, it might be John D. McDonald, Kingsley Amis, C.S. Lewis. Uh, That's a good list. <laughs> Fritz Leiber. Uh, etc gotcha gotcha well um so yeah i just want to thank you for coming on my show and i'll try not to be a complete goofball um because i'm trying not to geek out but um so you primarily are, are, are primarily you're a fantasy and science fiction author and um you write what uh is referred to i think you refer to it as this i think other people do too secret histories so you write novels that um, they're not alternate histories, they're secret histories in that they, they reveal what actually happened in the lives of, you know, Thomas Edison or, or um, Kim Philby or, um, you know, um, Percy Shelley. And um, there's a quote from Tom Shippey. It, it, he's talking about alternate history, but I want to see what you, what you think about this. Um, I'll, I'll just read it. This is from a book called, uh, he didn't write this, but it's called from a book called Science Fiction and Catholicism by Jim Clark. Uh, I've mentioned this before on my show. Um, so anyone who believes in the reality of a counterfeit world or alternate universe is insane. And even trying to half believe it is in the, is in it is the wrong approach. I would suggest that the point of the whole alternate universe subgenre is in exactly the opposite direction, not to create belief in the unreal, but to subvert belief in the real or what is accepted as real. Um, so I don't know. I don't think that's what you're trying to do with your books, but it is, it is an interesting way to look at alternate history. 
Um, yeah. Um, but really, I think uh, what he's talking about, the point he's making, could just as well be made of a whole lot of fantasy and science fiction, or fantasy especially. It's not this world. And the sort of one of the fun things about it is that when you read it, you're sort of in the gap between the described world and our real world. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, that's not what I do. In fact, um, I try very hard to convince the reader, no, this is this world. Yeah. This is the world we live in. This is not an alternate. Look, I mean, check out everything I say about Thomas Edison or Lord Byron or whoever. Those are all true. Uh, um, because I think a big problem in writing uh, fantasy especially is that the reader in the back of their mind knows and you don't want it to get to their front of their mind that this is all nonsense. <laughs> this is all completely bogus. And you want as much as possible to trick them into thinking, no, look, it's, 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 it's a real world. You want them to take it as credulously as they would take a detective novel mm -hmm. or a Western or a romance uh, and not have that degree of separation that is inevitable if they think, oh, well, this is about some other reality, some other world. Uh, I don't want them to have that separation. Yeah. You want them to be convinced that this is you yeah, know, this happening is... in their, you know, even in their time, time period. Right. So a yeah. lot of, you know, um, some yeah, of your books of take, it, Oh, go ahead. A lot of it didn't make the papers. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the history books were not aware of it, but right. nothing I'm saying contradicts what is in the history books. Yeah. <laughs> that that's true. Uh, it's very yeah. The, it's impressively uh, the de the the historical accuracy is imp impressive. Um, and so even a lot. So some of your books take place in the past, right? So you know, Drawing of the Dark took place, you know, the Siege of Vienna, um, and then some of them are contemporary. And you want the reader to think that you know, this is going on right now, you know, this, this sort of stuff is happening right now, you know, in my life, this, you know, that this kind of thing is possible, um, whether it's like inhaling ghosts or, or, right. um, you know, any, anything from like that, or, you know, uh, exercising a demon or something, um, which I don't think you have yeah. in your books necessarily, but. Um, yeah. Inevitably it's covert mm -hmm. um, because otherwise we'd all know about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if you postulate that there's supernatural stuff going on in this world right now, you kind of do have to, well, not kind of, you do have to say it's uh, under the surface. Right. It's under the radar. Uh, most people don't hear about it so that the reader will think, that's true. In fact, I never heard about it. <laughs> and Powers is the one who's going to enlighten us all. And <laughs> yeah, and there is something very attractive about um, being given the secret story behind 
uh, the evident narrative. Mm -hmm. um, I think of a book by Thomas Pinch and The Crying of Lot 49, in which there is a whole secret postal system that has been around since at least the Renaissance. And it's very covert and pretty much used only by people who are off the grid, fallen between the cracks. And so among kind of fugitive people, it's known, but among all of us who have pay our taxes and <laughs> register our cars, we've never heard of it. Yeah. And that was a fictional one, I believe. Um, <laughs> But he shored it up with a lot of real history. Mm -hmm. So if you thought, huh, I wonder if that's true, and, and you were to kind of superfluously or uh, on a surface level research it, you'd think, wow, I, maybe it's true. Yeah. And then there's another type, which is like Dan Brown's uh, Da Vinci Code, which claims to be not a fictional secret backstory, but the real secret backstory right. and that one did not hold up to research uh, I, <laughs> no if you if you read that one and thought golly i wonder if this is real five minutes with the encyclopedia britannica showed you that the quote facts were in fact fiction right but yeah, there exactly. is something fun about thinking whether it's fictional or real I'm being led into the the secret behind the uh, recommended narrative. Right. Well, there's a there's a book called um, A Church of Spies um, by Mark Riebling, and it's all about the Vatican's um, um, the it's the oldest spy ring in the world, and this is true. This is a true you know, it's, it's a true story, and it it goes up to um, Pope Pius the twelfth. And it talks ah. about the myth of the Hitler's Pope, right? So he, like, that he was, um, you know, buddy-buddy right. with Hitler and stuff like that, which he, he wasn't. Um, and it talked about how he helped in, in some small part to orchestrate um, Hitler's assassination, like some, you know, trying to get rid of Hitler. Um, uh -huh. And so it's, it's stuff like that where it's like this stuff does happen, right? You, there are spy rings, and like, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the Vatican, <laughs> um, it would be fun for me sometime to write a novel really involving the fabulous imagined basements uh the 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 closed off secret library right yeah that, that must must exist at the vatican right yeah oh uh, for sure yeah you wouldn't have to um make up your history i i'm confident that if i was somehow to be able to research it thoroughly i'd find a gold mine <laughs> of fictional opportunities yeah, of weird weird stuff that oh yeah you add it uh, all up and it yeah one one heck of a story um so yeah speaking of that so i think you probably get this a lot but i don't know about from catholics but for me declare is my favorite of your novels um and because i think you incorporate a lot of catholic elements into it but i think not only that it actually does really seem true you know that the soviet union was under the protection of some malevolent deity yeah. you know like yeah, that yeah. that really does seem like it 
you know, and the Ukrainian fam- this spoilers, you know, whatever. But the, the Ukrainian famine was orchestrated as a human sa- like a mass human sacrifice, and you know, like that that sort of stuff. I'm like, wow, that actually does make a lot of sense. <laughs> and I think there probably is an element of that yeah. that actually is true in, in some yeah. spiritual level. <laughs> yeah, I never um, approach a s- writing a novel with a story already in mind. Yeah, I I find an area of history, say, that looks very uh, rich and likely to provide cool stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I just read it as if I was a cold case detective um, <laughs> and say, okay, given that the background story will be supernatural, what is it? And, and uh, so I read a book about Kim Philby that had an introduction by John Le Carre mm-hmm. in which Le Carre raised a bunch of questions like who really was running Philby? Uh, why was he seen at this uh, border between Turkey and um, God knows what Romania, not Romania, uh, Albania. And why uh, was it later denied and on and on a bunch yeah. of questions that got me thinking and so when i researched it all uh philby's father was very careful never to have him baptized yeah when philby was head of station in turkey he was obsessed with mount ararat mm-hmm. uh photographs of it and drove out to it and I thought, okay, uh, baptism, error rat. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can see the direction these clues are leading. <laughs> and so it did wind up involving some Catholic elements. Yeah. And I could even probably facetiously argue that even an atheist writer, given those clues, would have come up with the same supernatural backstory mm, yeah because mount ararat is actually where the ark the ark noah's ark is supposed to be found right or that's where it was supposed to land um after the flood is that right right and yeah. in fact it was fascinating researching that because there are a number of mutually contradictory but very <laughs> convincing uh <laughs> stories about fragments of it being found or an outline of a ship visible by infrared from satellites. Uh, And as I say, they're mutually contradictory, but for that kind of conspiracy theory attitude that I like to adopt when I'm writing fiction, it was all very compelling stuff. Yeah. But it is interesting. So you, you like kind of compile all these clues and the story it doesn't like write itself, but you can kind of see where the like the story kind of propels, like the yeah. kind of propel where the how the story kind of unfolds. Yeah, the research gives me elements that I figure, okay, that's too cool not to use. Yeah, uh, that's too crucial to leave out. Um, and when I've got a whole bunch of these things, really the challenge is connect the dots. Mm-hmm. And I think, okay, it involves. Uh, genies i can't help it look at the research see for yourself right (laughs) Uh, yeah Uh, and your genies are kind of 
Are they Nephilim in that in Declare? Uh, I don't think I said they were. Okay. But uh, I think logically they must have been since they're sort of. Well, they're like they're part. Of, I think I haven't read it in a little while, but I think that they were angel like fallen angels that you know didn't go all the way right. to hell, right? But they yes. are on Earth and they want to be worshipped, and you know, and they they're still really evil. <laughs> yeah. Um, in fact, um, if you've read C.S. Lewis's uh, That Hideous Strength, yeah, mm -hmm. he talks about powers that are still on earth lingering from the day when magic was not yet distinctly bad oh i see mm -hmm. it, it was still it was already bad for you yeah but it uh they hadn't separated out as widely yet okay um, so that um you could consult um, spirits in trees or rivers <laughs> without spiritual damage to yourself. Right, right. And <laughs> they still I, might eat I you. Think, but <laughs> well, yeah, it wasn't good for you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, of course, I wanted to make the genies, fallen angels, distinctly not motivated by human uh yeah concerns human yeah. goals right. i didn't want to make them the sort of bad creatures that want gold or women uh, <laughs> you yeah. know no they're they're very alien that the, yeah they're very um yeah there's a i think there's a scene in declare where um they they are noticing the way we move like the humans move and it's not logical it doesn't like go to according to their own patterns and they they don't comprehend like how we even move you know something like yeah, that yeah yeah so yeah and very... for them to re remember something would be to do it again yeah yeah they, they didn't seem to have the idea of sequential time right yep which is very uh, which was a lot of, a lot of fun and yeah uh, and it was fun having such a detailed and intrinsically colorful canvas to work with which is um espionage in the 40s 50s and right. 60s yeah and luckily it uh by the time i wrote the book a whole lot of it had been unclassified Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a whole lot of Philby's Russian handler, um, some of the CIA documents, uh, the, the Venona decrypts, mm -hmm. uh, a whole lot of it was available, which would not have been if I'd written the book 20 years earlier. Yeah. Yeah, that's really, that's, that's really interesting. It would have been a completely different book. Um, but so... You have you have sacraments in your books, um, like baptism in Declare and baptism. I have not read Stress of Her Regard yet, but I have read Hide Me Among the Graves, um, and baptism plays a role in that and kind of protecting you from the influence of the Nephilim. And there's a scene uh, with Edward 
Edward Trelawney, where he is in charge of all the, you know, all these um, kids, right? And he, he he baptizes all of them, even though he's an atheist, doesn't believe it. Um, right. But he, he's like, if it cost me a penny, I wouldn't do it. Like, <laughs> right. Yeah, I really right. loved his character. I thought he was really an interesting. He was a fascinating character, and of course, he was real. Yeah, yeah. And mm -hmm. um, I admire Edward Trelawney. He was a complete liar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, claimed to have been a pirate in the Indian Ocean and uh, participated in all these sea battles and convinced everybody except Lord Byron, mm -hmm. who would always just sort of sit back and nod like, sure, Edward. But, um, but then he did, after Byron's death, become a Greek mountain warlord. <laughs> and yeah. he, kinda, he kind of, after the fact, did have the sort of life he'd been lying about before. Yeah, it's fascinating. And he was a resolute atheist, but of that kind where you think it's more um, resentful than... Mm reasoned yeah yeah uh and so uh, it did seem to me consistent that he would dismiss baptism as an empty gesture but at the same time to be on the safe side <laughs> he's not going to get baptized himself but he will see that these children he's in charge of are baptized just just in case. <laughs> yeah, it's free. If it cost a penny, I wouldn't do it. Right. It's free. Yeah, that was a good line. Um, so you, you have these sacraments in in your books, and um, they kind of shine through, right? They're not always obvious, um, but obviously like in Declare and in High Beam in the Graves, it, it's clearly baptism. Um, but you have other things too, like um, I just finished Expiration Date, and you have Pete Sullivan. He's got this like... Um, you know, like a, a wallet thing that he's wearing um, around his neck, right? It's like a travel thing. I've, I've worn them before. It's like a you know, piece in the front, piece in the back, and you keep like your... Yeah, your... you got your passport. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And you refer to that as like his scapular, right? So it's like... Um, yeah. And it kind of... And that's not a sacrament, but it is a sacramental. Um, and it... And another spoiler, I guess, but um, it does protect him in the end, right? Right, um, yeah. And so you have that and you have like um, a priest who really likes your books on social media. His name's Father Brendan. Um, he's, he pointed out, I didn't catch this, I guess, when I first read um, On Stranger Tides, but you have the sacrament of marriage at, um, at the end protecting against the Blackbeard. <laughs> yeah. um, so you have yeah, all these things right. and I, it's, it's, it's fascinating um, that you kind, of, you kind of take all of this, uh, all of this research and all of these weird things that you find and then I don't know if it's consciously or not, but you you have all these things like the sacraments and um, all these sacramentals kind of break through, you know, like showing them that these are real. You know, this is real and this is efficacious. Yeah, I, I think probably a lot of it is, um, you might say, subconscious, mm -hmm. just uh, what strikes me as logical. Sure. Uh, it strikes me, of course if we're admitting supernatural stuff at all, of course marriage would constitute a change yeah. in the two people involved. Their status would be different. Their um, essence would be different. Mm -hmm. And baptism, as I recall in Declare, even the atheist Philby was aware that it 
changed the it was sort of a phase change yeah. of a person's identity so yeah that's probably just uh the fact that it's a catholic looking at all those details yeah. and things that are too cool not to use and applying if not overtly catholic interpretation at least a sort of catholic attitude catholic yeah. logic <laughs> yeah logic <laughs> yeah. You know, of course it's a sacramental it, ha it has to be what, what else what else would it be, would it be? yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man um i like when philby uh, i think it's at the end where he um he's talking about how he baptized all of his children right uh, but he did it without their knowing. So he pushed one out of a fishing right. boat, right? And um, then he said the the prayers quick before the the kid got in the, back into the boat. And he, he just didn't, you know, because he knew it, it it did something, right? He knew it it had an effect and it could protect yes. his, his own children. Uh, but he yes. refused baptism himself, which um, what a bad idea. Yeah, um, he shouldn't refuse. <laughs> yeah, in fact, uh, his father, Sinjin Philby, who mm -hmm. was kind of a Lawrence of Arabia figure, really very dramatic um he refused to have young kim baptized but he took samples of water from the jordan river mm -hmm. and had them sent to the british museum to be tested for supernatural properties <laughs> i'm not making that up he really what? did and I, I can't imagine how you test water for supernatural i mean do you pour it on a dead mouse and see if it comes <laughs> back to life but he and his father both were very uneasy with Christianity mm. in general, and in fact, even Catholicism in particular. Philby several times on record cornered some Catholic at a party, semi-sober, <laughs> and said, well, so do you really have a firm purpose of amendment after confession? how does this work what do you mean um how 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 can your terrible actions be negated and he sort of there was almost something wistful about it yeah like he wished he could have access to that kind of forgiveness right yeah i mean he i think at the end of declare he um hail the main character offers to baptize him right and he refuses because he doesn't think that his sins could actually be forgiven for all the horrible stuff yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah i remember lord byron said that uh if he were ever to convert to catholicism it would be because of the sacrament of confession <laughs> i think chesterton said that once too like why are you catholic because i can get my sins forgiven or something ah, like that yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um so yeah you mentioned c.s lewis is one of your favorite authors he's one of mine too um and when i read when i read um that hideous strength in particular. And then I read declare, I could see that there were a lot of similarities between the two. Um, so how, how else has like CS Lewis, uh, maybe I'm way off. I don't know, but <laughs> how, how else has CS Lewis um, influenced your, your thinking and, and your literary approach? Well, actually inordinately it's his book, that hideous strength. Yeah. Uh, that got so many supernatural effects so believably and also so firmly stapled to the real world with its kind of college university background 
and mm -hmm. the uh, scientific uh, community kind of uh, invading them. Um, yeah. And some of the effects, like when they succeed in reviving Merlin, mm -hmm. and the real Merlin makes his way to our good guys and a sort of homeless tramp <laughs> gets mistaken by the bad guys for the real Merlin. Mm -hmm. uh, some just beautiful effects. Uh, but yeah, all of C.S. Lewis's fiction, the Narnia books, for example, mm -hmm. uh, managed to be so convincing I think people make a big mistake when they see him as a Christian apologist, primarily, because he was such a very effective fiction writer. Yeah. The plots, the description, the dialogue, the characters uh, are terrific models. Mm -hmm. For one thing, he appreciates food. Uh, <laughs> I, I like, they, it never just says, they had a meal. Right. He always tells us what they had, and you think, wow. Lewis must have been hungry when he wrote this scene. <laughs> yeah, there's that attention to detail with yeah. And then of course there's his nonfiction, uh, things like especially maybe the abolition of man, mm -hmm. in which he, for example, makes a distinction between something objectively being beautiful, sublime, versus it's simply being in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's simply being a subjective reaction to something. He, he made the point. No, it really is independently beautiful. Right. Whether, whether you can appreciate it or not. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, uh, I, I think I've read virtually all of his nonfiction. Well, except for several of the, uh, literary analysis works oh okay have so you read the discarded image have you read the, the, the discarded image? image is real good yeah yeah that's a good one yeah um in fact off track the discarded image is very valuable for doing something i think fiction writers should do uh, which is to separate yourself at least for a little while from the default zeitgeist of the 21st century yeah Lewis in that book really does let you feel what the perspectives were of medieval writers, what yep. their world was. Uh, <clears throat> and I think there's a lot of value, especially for science fiction fantasy writers, in being able to step out of our zeitgeist yeah. and look at here and now as if it were aliens separated from us by centuries right well you do a very good job of that in your fiction of um because like like i said i, I just finished exp uh, expiration date and um there's a scene where um pete and um uh, angelica um they go to the the graveyard to go to his father's grave and it's just this alien world of because they can see they can see the dead right they can see they can see the ghosts and stuff and it's just this surreal alien world and like these you know they're animating the leaves and like the leaves are like dance flailing around you know and dance dancing in front of this other grave and like <laughs> it's just this complete 
it's just this surreal place. And yeah, it's, is that, so is that something you picked up from Lewis or is that like a complete power? Like this is, cause I think that's something you're really good at. It's like just describing these weird out there like um, places. Yeah. I would say Lewis and somebody like MR James. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, older Dracula. Sure. Um, so that you can have access to old scary effects, uh, such as inanimate objects, leaves, for example, mm -hmm. um, blankets on a bed, uh, performing a scary function, as opposed to what we today think of as scary stuff, which is the scary child with a butcher knife yeah. or mm -hmm. the guy in the ski mask <laughs> um, it, or, or the, the monster that drools slimy stuff really bad. Um, <laughs> there are effects in older, older stories and fairy tales yeah. that are still potently scary, but that don't really get used anymore. Right. And so it's fun to be able to, transplant them uh in the confidence that they are still scary they'll just be unfamiliar right like That's... i remember uh in the grimm's fairy tales there was a horse's head nailed to a post and it would talk <laughs> and i remember that was really scary <laughs> yeah but um so yeah i i i that just reinforces my point that you don't want to get locked into the assumptions and beliefs of right now. Right now. So um, one thing that kind of you stand out uh, from other authors is that it's hard to pin down what genre you're kind of writing in. Right. So you, you said that you write fantasy and science fiction. It's like, it's like this weird mix up of both and it kind of does, go back to fairy tales um where that's where a lot of this science fiction and fantasy kind of emerged from where the the fairy tales and like the gothic stories and your fiction does seem to be pulling a lot from those those older stories so much so that people don't even people today reading your books don't know what category to put you in because everything has to be in a category right so everything has to be either science fiction with space lasers and and monsters or fantasy with elves and wizards, you know, and there's nothing, and if it doesn't fit, it's like, how, how do we classify this? So I think, is that something like, um, it's something like the, the older pulp authors kind of did too, you know, like um, Robert E. Howard and they had horror and they had action. They had, you know, they had all that, that cosmic sort of stuff. Um, I love Howard. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, Lovecraft, certainly, he was an atheist, mm -hmm. complete materialist, determinist. Yeah. Uh, he hated um, uh, Heisenberg's uncertainty <laughs> principle. He hated the Michelson-Morley experiment. and um, But at the same time, fortunately for all of us, he had very vivid nightmares. And so what struck him as the most sort of compelling sort of story to write 
was the nightmares. Yeah. Uh, but when he wrote his fiction, he was also very scientifically educated. Mm-hmm. And so people have pointed out that Lovecraft really was writing as much science fiction as he was writing fantasy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I maybe from Lovecraft have figured out that just because you're writing fantasy and involving magic and the supernatural doesn't mean you get to ignore physics. Right. Like I would, an obvious example is you, I wouldn't have a person's hair turn white overnight after a shock. Okay. Because you think, well, no, no. How, how is this bit of hair two inches out affected by some shock he experienced? But, uh, less obviously than that, I would not, without a lot of thought, have an invisible man who could see by yeah. visible light. Uh, because if the light all goes right through him and isn't being stopped by his retinas, yeah, I might say he could see by infrared exclusively. Mm-hmm. But I would, I would have to think about that. And one staple of fantasy stories is little tiny men little four inch tall guys yeah yeah and you think okay you got a problem there with they got too much surface area for their mass Mm -hmm. they're going to be losing heat constantly (laughs) they're going to have to eat constantly yeah so how much brain can it have if you want one of them to be able to speak he's got no more brain than a mouse right and in a recent story of mine, I did have little four-inch tall guys who could speak. Um, but being aware of that problem, I had it be kind of a cumulative group mind. Oh, okay. that a, whole, a whole bunch of them telepathically linked could constitute a mind that could, you know, do math, play <laughs> chess. Yeah. But I, I, do, I do think it's not only something that Lovecraft reminded me of, but I think it's helpful as fiction. I think it shores up the credulity. Mm-hmm. If, if you uh, have some awareness of physics when, when you're writing magical effects. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, Dean Koontz, I mentioned this before we started, but um, there's an essay uh, that Dean Koontz wrote um, for um, the bibliography, Power Secret Histories, a bibliography. And I think in there he mentions that you combine um, faith and reason, you know, very effectively. Um, and he, he, he thanked St. Thomas Aquinas <laughs> for it. Um, but it, when you mention that, you know, that it, you're scientifically accurate and you have the magical element to it or the sacramental element to it or, or whatever it is, that they do like they do mesh really well. They do. And that's part of what makes it really convincing um, that you have one character will explain the magical way to explain it. And then you have another character explain the you know, ghosts are electrical, you know, they, and this is how they function, you know, and yeah. Yeah, and so they it meshes really well. You know, you have the faith and reason that come together, and um, it's yeah. That just right now that kind of struck me is that that's exactly what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, it's um, 
it's fun to take something, a subject like ghosts, and figure, okay, if these were real, if ghosts really did happen mm -hmm. in the real world, what would they consist of? I mean, you see them, so they block light. Mm -hmm. uh, they, therefore, there's some kind of physical thing going on there, uh, unless they simply project an image into your head so that you're hallucinating the sight of a ghost. And, and I've looked at in uh, the army 30 or 40 years ago was employing remote viewers. Oh yeah. They'd get it, get a guy to lie down on a cot in a dark room and try to see a missile base in Kiev. Mm -hmm. And he would come up with a description of a place, but they couldn't really act on it because they couldn't be sure he didn't simply <laughs> imagine it. Right. And if they went there and found that he would had been accurate, they say, oh, okay, uh, we should have paid attention. But, you know, we can't routinely do that because the next thing he thought he saw was um, Dorothy and the Munchkins in Oz. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it is, it is fun to uh, try it. Ha. You don't come up with valid explanations, but you hope to come up with convincing sounding double talk <laughs> enough to make the reader think oh yeah well you know what the hell uh <laughs> i remember asking gregory benford i said with um uh which which book was it it was um stress of her regard oh, okay i said i want to have a silicon based life form uh which scientifically is plausible they uh it's it's right under carbon on the uh periodic table and has a lot of the same properties mm -hmm. what would what would i have to i, I want to say that that's why trolls turn to stone when they're exposed to sunlight mm -hmm. um energy bath crystallizes them and i want to say that's what happened to lot's wife um oh it wasn't a it wasn't a pillar of salt she turned into. It was quartz. Yeah. How do I make this plausible? And Benford said, well, it's nonsense. But if you emphasize this <laughs> and go nowhere near that, it'll do. It'll, it'll get by. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, that's what you want is you want it to get by. You want it to be plausible so that the reader goes, oh, yeah, okay, quartz, sure. Quartz. Yeah. Well, a fun thing about your books is that it does, it really does hold up to scrutiny. Like I'll, I'll be reading one and then I'll just spend a while searching, you know, Google, <laughs> like looking, okay, did this actually happen? And then like, oh yeah, that part did. This is weird. This is getting weird. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes I convince myself. Um, I remember reading about Bugsy Siegel, mm -hmm. who was virtually the founder of Las Vegas. And he built the flamingo on roughly christmas the flamingo hotel mm -hmm. which was a eccentric palace yeah. uh every room had its own sewer line for example the walls were insanely thick <laughs> um lots of needless expense but he opened it on christmas closed it on Good Friday, and reopened it on Easter. <laughs> okay, okay. 
wow, what, what's going on here? And then he was murdered in Los Angeles in 1946 on the day that is ceremonially, ceremonially remanded, remembered as the death of, I won't remember the Babylonian god's name, uh, uh, Tammuz, Tammuz. Okay. And I thought, okay, at which point I bring to bear one of my rules, which is nothing is a coincidence. Yeah, it's a when good I'm, rule. When I'm, when I'm looking at the history, if Einstein did something in Germany on the same day that Charlie Chaplin broke his leg in Hollywood, I think, aha, <laughs> not a coincidence. And so with, with Bugsy Siegel, uh, I almost started to wonder, well, what was going on? Yeah. <laughs> not my explanation, I'm sure, but um, but there are hints that there is some backstory there that uh, hasn't quite been unearthed yet. Well, it is weird, you know, um, that all of this stuff it does have like it does it does go along with like the liturgical calendar, right? Like all these I historical. Know. That was that was something. Yeah, it's <laughs> all so weird. I mean that, and then yeah, and he dies the same day as the ceremony. You know, this this Babylonian god. Like that's so weird. Like that's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and of course, in actual fact, it means nothing. But <laughs> when you when you put it together and point at it, you think, "Oh, uh-huh, yeah, wow." Yeah. <laughs> I remember, for example, um, reading that Thomas Edison's last breath mm-hmm. was caught in a test tube. In fact, I've seen it. It's in a museum in Michigan, mm-hmm. and you think, "Okay, that's certainly very odd." Uh, it does look like trying to catch his escaping ghost. Yeah. And then I read that Edison, his announced last project, which he didn't live to complete, but he described in a letter to Scientific American, was to invent a telephone you could talk to dead people with. Yeah, yeah. And I think, okay, we got the dead people telephone, we got the breath in the <laughs> test tube, we can go here. Yeah. <laughs> this'll work man oh it's so weird yeah it's i think that the really the really fun part about it is what you're finding is all stuff that happened and you're just connecting the dots and it's like yeah edison was really he did those things right he he wanted to make a a dead person telephone and he you know he did yeah. have was it did it was it really henry ford who caught his yes caught, caught, it, it was, was henry ford wow yeah, Henry Ford was a friend of the family and told Edison's kids, look, uh, your old man, I, I, terrible thing, dirty shame, he's dying, but could you do me this? Here's a test tube, here's a cork. Could you just um, hang out next to your dying father until he... Yeah, I picture Edison there like, uh, uh, and there's children hanging over him with the test tube, and finally he goes, uh, and they cork it and start to walk out of the room. And then he goes, <gasps> and they have to blow in it and rush back uh, and cork it again. But um, yeah, uh, I don't think there is any historical character who, if you read a really big biography of them, mm-hmm. would fail to have some really weird actions. Yeah. Uh, and of course, when, for example, Blackbeard the pirate did a lot of irrational things and wound up being captured and killed through 
apparently insane negligence. Yeah, yeah. But you tell yourself, well, what if that wasn't insane negligence? What if that was actually very shrewd? Mm -hmm. And you can look at any historical character and look at some idiot thing they did and say, what if that was not a stupid thing to do? What if, if you knew the whole story, you could see that that was actually a very shrewd thing to do? Yeah. And then you say, well, okay, what sort of backstory would make that a shrewd thing to do? Say, well, <laughs> you know, give me a minute. Uh, <laughs> uh, like, um, was it Nero who sent his soldiers to go slash at the sea? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Now, see? Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> you think, well, what's the explanation? Well, he was crazy. What if he wasn't crazy? <laughs> Crazy's boring. What if, <laughs> what if that was crucial? to be done right and you think, well, how, under what circumstances would that be a crucial move and you think well give me a minute uh wasn't he go, like he wanted to go to war with poseidon or something like that i think that's what it was i can't remember but yeah see now in in a fantasy novel you could make that be yeah, that, a very that effective move right uh set poseidon back quite a ways <laughs> for one thing it was obviously not ordinary swords uh, right. They may have been they may have been made of ice, yeah, uh, from some rival body of water. <laughs> uh, stands to reason. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, do you do you consider yourself to be writing in any particular tradition? Like I know um, I haven't read Stress of a Regard, but I know that's from um, um, Clark Ashton Smith. Um, are you are you you you're kind of combining you know the fairy tales and the pulp authors but are you are you do you see yourself writing in that tradition or like in the inklings are you like kind of writing in like uh charles williams c.s lewis sort of um like how do you less re less respectably than that um <laughs> i i definitely feel like i'm sequential with the pulp writers mm -hmm. um howard lovecraft clark ashton smith henry cutner mm -hmm. uh Frederick Pohl, C.M. Kornbluth, uh, et cetera. Um, the weird tales, astounding planet stories. Um, if I was living then, I'd be writing for those pulp magazines. Yeah, yeah. Because um, one thing, I know just selfishly, when I'm reading, I want lots of color, uh, I want action. I want weird ideas. I want mm -hmm. dramatic confrontations, which I find in those writers. Right. And which I like to think I sort of provide in my books. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm never thinking about, I mean, I think very hard about my plots. Does yeah. it con internally make sense? But I never think about my themes. Mm -hmm. Like, having something to say. Right. Um, I know many writers say, well, I want my readers to think. <laughs> well, I, w I want them to think too, but I want them to think about the characters in the story. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't want my readers to read something of mine and say, this is very relevant to what's going on today. <laughs> yeah. Um, if it is, it's only by accident. Mm-hmm. And, and a little 
it, it also it would uh, indicate a bit of carelessness since I don't want to be focusing on emphasizing current 2022 concerns. Yeah. Uh, I always think writers who do look at their fiction as commentary on current political or social issues are nailing themselves too tightly to the year in which their books published. Mm -hmm. I remember Galaxy Magazine in like 1969 published stories about galactic empires 5,000 years in the future in which the big concern was student unrest and legalizing marijuana. <laughs> and you think, Boy, is that a 1969 story? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I hope I'm never timely. <laughs> oh, yeah, that is a big, a big trend in modern, like contemporary fiction. It's having having something to say, uh, other than what's going on in the story. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you, you personally, you have Catholicism like baked into your stories, uh, but it's it's not in a way that's like you you're trying to drive a an ideological point necessarily right yeah right. it's it's there and it's um if you if you read between the lines sometimes you can go oh yeah okay like that's yeah tarot cards are bad right <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I, yes, as a matter of fact i think anybody should find tarot cards ouija boards yeah. uh thing scary because you're if if it's not simply nonsense you're getting something mm -hmm. you're getting information okay what did you pay for it right uh what sort of credit card voucher did you sign and <laughs> what was the currency of right. that credit card voucher um <laughs> yeah I, I, it seems to me that anybody who thinks those things work should be leery of them. Because oh, what yeah. is what was the payment? What what was the cost? I remember um, I was not a practicing Catholic at this point, but I used to work at a summer camp, and um, my friends came back. I did not do this with them, but they came back and they used a Ouija board, right? Um, and they wanted to talk to the shadow people that lived in the woods, and <laughs> and I. <laughs> I was like, I was not really a practice. I was, I did not return to my faith at this point, but even I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, don't do that. Like, I don't know if this stuff works or not, but why in the world would you play around with this? You, you idiots. Like, what are you doing? And they yeah, were, yeah. they were terrified, you know, since so something, I don't know what happened, but something clearly happened when they were doing it. And I bet they were, they were scared out of their minds. And yeah. I don't think they ever did it again. I hope they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I was at a convention one time and somebody told me, um, hey, do you want me to do a tarot reading of you? And I said, no, thank you. And somebody else said, you're smart not to do it. I used to do tarot readings all the time and look at it as my movable window that I could use to look at any situation I was curious about. Yeah. And, but then late one rainy night, I was laying out my movable window and got the vivid, clear impression that something on the other side had blundered past and looked through the window at me <laughs> and and now would know me again, oh, would gosh. recognize me. Uh. And 
She said, I immediately knocked the cards on the ground, but of course, it was too late. Man. Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, it's so awful. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I, don't, I don't think you have to be uh, Catholic, Christian, religious <laughs> to look at those things <laughs> with, with a lot of caution. Yeah, that's awful. <laughs> I'm glad she stopped, but... Well, yeah, too get, late by then. Yeah, get the attention of some <laughs> eldritch demon or something. You know, it's horrifying. Um, man, that's just awful. But so, yeah, you're you're a Catholic, and um, I'm a Catholic, and this is a Catholic podcast. But, you know, I don't know if everybody who listens is Catholic, but you're one of the the only, uh, um, except for Christopher Accio, you know, um, but he's pretty new. But um, you're one of the only contemporary catholic novelists um that's in the sci-fi fantasy kind of world gene wolf you know died a couple years ago um and that's yeah La like ari lafferty died a long time a while ago john c wright's still around uh but he doesn't do anything with uh like mainstream um yeah. stuff anymore anthony but... boucher long dead yeah so how does so when you what is it like being a, a catholic in this in that sort of atmosphere well i think it is one of the ways just speaking in terms of craft of having an independent perspective mm -hmm. um of not unthinkingly swallowing the assumptions and perspectives of uh the current secular world and uh and i think there's value in that yeah. i think there's value in whatever removes you from that default stream yeah um but as far as it being specifically catholic I think it's an advantage in that it makes my stories, since as you say, I'm one of very few Catholics writing this stuff, it makes my stories have a perspective, back, background perspective and attitude that sets my stories off mm -hmm. from the default. Um, it probably sometimes raises some mistrust <laughs> in the i don't know about the readership but among uh the other writers yeah um i know declare got at least one not altogether good review because the writer said powers is emphasized it, declare is a catholic tract which of course it's not. It's right. a story about genies <laughs> and spies. Yeah. Um, but I think he knew I was Catholic and therefore fired his guns at a position he thought I was occupying. Okay. Yeah. And uh, sometimes reviewers have said Powers's Catholic attitudes are evident here, and I'm thinking, <laughs> no, I don't think they really are. Not evident. <laughs> But you knew I was Catholic, and so you sort of had that in the front of your mind as you read the book. Right. Um, probably, 
probably the core morality I impose on my characters differs from whatever the core morality uh, of the secular 21st century is. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think of specific examples, but probably I'm punishing my characters sometimes for things which would not be recognized as immoral yeah in general well like um in alternate roots uh yeah exactly the, yeah, yeah yeah i mean i the, the, the other spoilers um um vickery he gets a vasectomy right and right yeah and that's and that leads to a breakdown in his marriage and then his wife's suicide um which is horrible you know and but other i i don't know any other author aside from any catholic author um any, any secular secular author who would say that what's wrong with that you know why would that be an issue uh, i actually That's read a, a review of alternate roots where that was a big complaint and i'm I read like that review too <laughs> yeah and i'm like well written, written the second these are bad friend, written by a good friend of mine actually oh really <laughs> yeah um but again while getting a vasectomy is certainly um considered very wrong by Catholicism, mm -hmm. um, I like to think that in the book, uh, it made secular sense too, mm -hmm. because um, it, it kind of makes sense that revealing it to his wife after years of marriage, yeah, could be a problem. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He didn't tell her right away, and um, and then yeah. for him to be in a supernatural uh, sort of field mm -hmm. uh for him to be haunted by the spirit of the daughter he would otherwise have had right was not illogical in right. fantasy fiction terms right so yeah the reason i thought of it probably uh, certainly is is because for me as a catholic that would be a serious misstep yeah in the life of the character but as I say, I like to think that, um, see, Didi, who wrote that review, he knows I'm Catholic. <laughs> uh, but I like to think that uh, an average secular reader could read it and think, well, yes, in this context, uh, yeah. it makes sense. Because there was that field generated by uh, traffic on the freeways right. in which ghosts, spirits of dead people... Uh, could appear right and so it wasn't a big stretch to say that also spirits of people who never were born but might have been mm -hmm. would appear right it's like a chaos probability field or something right yeah. that yeah. was fun that was yeah fun. yeah um, um yeah i think in that same review he he, he said that uh, he really liked it because it was it reminded him of like the anubis gates and like that kind of action adventure sort of story um yeah that's what i like to think i write is supernatural adventure stories yeah yeah um <clears throat> yeah so there are yeah there are things like that where it could rub um rub secular people uh the wrong way <laughs> which yeah, i read that and you... i go this is great this makes sense to me you know <laughs> yeah if you add it all up um because i never overtly try to 
well, I never try at all to yeah. write Catholic persuasion. Yeah. Um, but if you were to look at all my books looking for clues that the author is Catholic, <laughs> you would you would come across them. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're in there. <laughs> which, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, if a, if a writer was a vegetarian, you probably wouldn't have to read too many books before starting to think, they never have hamburgers. <laughs> What's up with this they author? never eat meat. <laughs> yeah. Another thing, um, it, in your like uh, last call and expiration date, I haven't read the third one yet, Earthquake Weather, but you have um, uh, Scott Crane and I, Diana, right? They um, get married at the end. Um, and he, Scott Crane actually doesn't want to have sex before marriage, right? So there was that element of it too. He's like, no, let's wait. Let's wait till we get married. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And I think um, the same kind of thing happened in Expiration Day where there's this kind of chastity between the two main characters, even though there's all this horrible stuff's going on, right? All this like terrible things are happening and they're still like, no, let's, you know, it, it's, it's, I don't know. It's kind of refreshing, I guess, but um, I, I could see that maybe. Yeah. Um, I think there is a value to having two characters who find each other attractive, mm -hmm. but let sparks jump across the gap rather than close the gap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think it's more attention holding if you keep thinking, well, are you guys going to do anything? <laughs> um, I think to some extent I get that or saw the value of that, mm -hmm. especially in my cat is knocking everything off the desk here. <laughs> um, I think where I especially saw that done uh, intriguingly is in an unfortunately obscure series of novels about a character named Modesty Blaze. Okay. Uh, written by uh, Peter O'Donnell. And in those books... The main character, Modesty Blaze, is this woman who is always um, working in partnership with this guy, Willie Garvin. Mm -hmm. And um, the point of their relationship, uh, the sustenance and engine of their relationship, is that they never do. Um, Fall in love, have sex. Uh, yeah. And fall in love is they don't they don't fall conventionally in love. Yeah. Um, but they're inseparable. Yeah, yeah. And and very effectively written. Um, and of course, in many cases, I like my characters. <laughs> uh, now in declare. Uh, our hero does have sex with yeah. the, uh, what's her name? Elena Teresa Ceniza Bendiga. Yeah. Um, it, I think it was when they were both still. Uh, she was a communist, I think. So. She yeah. Yeah, a, a committed communist agent. Mm -hmm. And um, I think at the end they were getting married. <laughs> yeah, well, what I what was interesting about that is um, 
she started to doubt her loyalty to the to the you, you know to the Soviet Union to communism because of her relationship with the main the, the Andrew yeah. Hale. I think so. Yeah, it's yeah, it was, she, so, she said she was married to the, the 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 communist state was her husband. Yeah, 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 and so she started to you know um, doubt that because she started falling for Hale instead. Especially when they, especially when they, um, what they nearly executed her. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I forget how she survived, but. Uh, <laughs> in, that... in the in what she thought were her last moments um in spite of her rejection of catholicism in her youth mm-hmm. she's mentally saying the hail mary you're right yeah yeah and i forget how it occurred but she didn't wind up killed right uh and that kind of made a big shift in her yep uh, it, it was sort of a divorce. Well, she was being executed by the Soviets in in the Lubyanka basement. Right. Uh, so it was sort of grounds for divorce from her uh, Soviet state husband. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, I remember that. That's a really great scene. Um, yeah, the saved by Marian devotion. Um, cause yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, no, I, I would, I would, I, I would hate to have a reviewer get hold of that. <laughs> it's a Catholic tract. This is propaganda. Yeah. No, like saying the Hail Mary saved her life and her soul. Yeah. What kind of book is this? Right, that doesn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, that that's, oh, that I love that book so much. It's so good. Um, but yeah, so. I'm trying to find my questions now. Where'd those go? Okay. Um, so with uh, you incorporate, oh, let's go back to like last call and expiration date. Um, and then there's earthquake weather. So they're collectively known as, or referred to as the fault lines trilogy. And I don't know why yet. <laughs> I don't know who came up with that. Um, at one point, the science fiction book club published uh, last call and expiration date together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they couldn't include uh, Earthquake Weather because it was a different publisher. One thing I oh. learned later is if you're going to write a trilogy, have the same publisher for all three books. <laughs> but um, whoever put together the uh, science fiction book club uh, omnibus called it The Fault Lines. I think the title of the collection was Fault Lines. Yeah. And since then, it's been referred to as the Fault Lines Trilogy, which I really couldn't have come up with a better title myself. Yeah, I mean, uh, if that was before... Implying, implying earthquake faults. Yeah, exactly. Uh, any kind of, you know, schism. And, of course, the word fault. Like, whose fault is it? Right. Uh, I think it's a great phrase. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was thinking about that when I was reading Expiration Day, and I have theories. I don't need to go into them now. But I didn't know that there was... It, that it was come up with um, that phrase was come up with before or it, uh, not, not including earthquake weather, which would, well, yeah. Um, I really would like one day to have that trilogy published as, you know, three uniform books. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, now some training press did that. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. They did a um, really very handsome 
uh, set of the three uh, as a boxed set. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, they're a fairly small press that you know you're not going to find it at Barnes and Noble. Yeah, yeah. No, they make. Uh, I don't own any of their books, but they make some really nice. I've you know been to their website and stuff. They make some really nice like hardbound editions. It is. It is fun. Um, well, I might have um, getting. What's the one? Uh, More walls broken. Is that Subterranean Press? Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have that one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is fun having those limited edition things done. Um, just from you know vanity. <laughs> uh, you know they're very nice, they're numbered and signed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'm a collector myself. Of against my will um and so i always uh am captivated by ah one of a hundred copies oh i need it um i i think it's i i should only esteem books because of their text <laughs> you know you, you get the book you want to read it good put it back on the shelf it, it shouldn't matter if it was signed by the author but it always does yeah i always think i always think look at this it's signed by you know Clark Ashton Smith. Clark Ashton Smith touched this page, and and look now I'm touching it. <laughs> uh, there was as some sort of totem. What's well, a relic? Uh, so it's like a saint relic. Relationship. Yeah. I, yeah. I, kind of right. It's the same sort of relationship um, that uh, you know you'd have to a, a first class class relic of a saint or you know a second class something they touched right. That's right. Like that hunger in the human soul for. Um, Ah. sanctity you know or something i don't know <laughs> and I, I love to i love to be somewhere and be able to say where i'm standing right now is exactly where so and so was standing historically um a while ago we were in howarth in yorkshire looking at the bronte parsonage and uh taking a tour through the building and the tour guide said that over there in that room past this velvet rope. That is the couch Emily Bronte died on. Hmm. And I love Emily Bronte. And so I let the tour get ahead and I stepped over the rope and touched the couch. <laughs> and you didn't die. <laughs> I know, no. <laughs> no, and I I mean I didn't see her ghost or anything. Yeah, right. But yeah, I, I love these kind of token associations yeah yeah it, it is like a it's the same kind of thing i think um when you have like oh this is where elvis well you know this is where elvis died or you know right yeah you think i'm standing exactly there or this is where the, the saint peter died you know in rome yeah you know oh, yeah in fact we were in jerusalem a few years ago and uh it is just sensory overload. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, they say, look at that. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. Ah, and now turn around. That's that's where Mary was born. Wow. Uh, <laughs> you want to see Golgotha, the actual hill? And they take you into this enormous crusader cathedral mm-hmm. to... Uh, vast chapel with lamps hanging on gold chains a hundred yard long and you go up to the marble altar and there's a little window inset at the base of the altar 
and you look through the window down on your hands and knees and you see dirt and they say that's the top of the hill ah um you want to see <laughs> the bottom of the hill you go down a bunch of flights of stairs and there's another chapel and another little glass window with dirt behind it wow. the hill is enclosed in this cathedral uh, but every step you take in Jerusalem, uh, that's where Pilate washed his hands, right there. Wow. And I think, well, I, I don't know if I want to stand right there. <laughs> uh, and, and just at every turn, it's this New Testament or Old Testament event happened where you're standing. Mm -hmm. Ah! You can see how come people sometimes suffer from uh, Jerusalem syndrome. There's whole hospital wings devoted to it. Uh, people, even atheists, staying in Israel, they wake up one morning and decide they're John the Baptist or Moses or somebody, and they wrap a bed sheet around themselves and <laughs> walk down the street. And of course, they, you know, cops take them and. I don't know, throw cold water in their face or something, and then, and then they remember who they are. But uh, I was thinking, okay, Powers, now, hang on. You're Tim Powers. You, you live in California. You're not John the Baptist. <laughs> if, it's, if you start thinking you are, have, have Serena slap you. <laughs> also, speaking of limited editions, have you seen the um, Charnel House editions? Uh, you should go to their website. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, they have really, they have really nice ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The guy in charge there, well, the guy who does it all, Joe Stefko, um, used to be a drummer for the Turtles and Meatloaf. <laughs> awesome. And uh, one day read a Stephen King book and got involved in book collecting, mm -hmm. and then got disappointed with the quality of a whole lot of the limited editions that were coming out right around that time with Stephen King. Yeah. And, and he just decided, well, I, I want to do them right. And so he just became <laughs> a, a really great small press publisher. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. They, they, he's really beautiful. Um, like the Anubis gates, I think it like opens up and it's got, um, like the Sphinx on it or like a Pharaoh on it or something. Oh, yeah. Now that's, that's centipede. And oh, that's they centipede. Great stuff too. Oh, yeah, okay. And, I, I, in fact, yeah. That edition must weigh 10 pounds. <laughs> Uh, no, I beautiful. I don't have any of those, but I, I, you know, I just, <laughs> I am too poor, I think, <laughs> to afford those. They're really, really nice, and they, I, whenever I look at them, I get jealous. But, but so, um, your, let's go back to um, your villains. Um, how do you, how do you go about constructing your villain? Like, um, just your view of like what's your view of evil and how do you kind of have your villain embody that well i want to give them a motivation the reader can understand mm. um ideally the reader would say i would not have chosen that way right. if i were that character but i can see why he did mm -hmm. um and i like the idea that nobody from a position of adequate morality goes into abominable behavior in one step yeah that there's a bunch of little concessions along the way no one of which seemed particularly bad 
but which cumulatively uh, add up to, yes, very bad. Yeah. Um, in fact, in uh, earthquake weather, there's a psychiatrist who eventually comes to the realization that he has, he has to admit, become what he would have to recognize as a bad man. Yeah. And he's kind of baffled by how he wound up there exactly. What step was it that constituted mm. stepping over an irrevocable line? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do think it's important that a reader say, I can see how he would have done that. Mm. I, I can see how I wouldn't do it, but I can see how somebody would. Yeah. Um, and, and then it's fascinating. I think of, um, again, that hideous strength, the characters Frost and Wither, who are yeah, uh, yeah. high ups in the NICE. They're sort of portraits of somebody who has gone very far along that line. Right. To the point where to pro proceed further required that they kiss off some element of humanity. Right. Uh, and then to proceed further still involves cutting off some even more essential part of humanity. Uh, in fact, I, uh, I like the idea Lewis said in, um, it might have been the problem of pain. He said, uh, the gates of hell are bolted from the inside. Uh, they would not rather be in heaven. Uh, and I like the idea that as you separate yourself by increasing degrees from God, you have to unplug <coughs> and let drop connections with God. And some of them are on very slack lines, and you're <laughs> going to have to go quite a way out before those lines get taut. Uh, some get unplugged right away. But as you move further and further out, um, you finally do come to the end of certain extension cords. And if you want to proceed, you have to unplug that. Right. And it always strikes me as naive when people say, I want to go to hell. Well, that's where all the interesting people are going to be. <laughs> I think it didn't, they might have been interesting when they were alive. But to get there, they will have had to sacrifice wit intelligence uh obviously things like love and loyalty yeah um but i think what you'd wind up with is sort of like in the great divorce sort of a kind of imbecilic resentful troll <laughs> would be all that is left yeah yeah well um you yeah you, you, a lot of your villains um, especially when they engage in horrific acts, you know, um, they have to lose more of themselves. Um, and they, like, I think in the Anubis Gates, maybe, maybe not, but when they're using, ma when the wizards are using magic, it, it like actually physically withers them. And I think it like affects their mental capacity and yeah. like, um, on Stranger Tides, I think it, it, um, they can't, you know, they can't do certain things anymore, right? They can't like eat they can't eat certain things anymore or like um, the Nephilim in those in hide me among the graves. It makes you impotent, right? It makes you, 
go blind. You know, you start, yeah. you, you gain yeah. all this stuff, but you're also losing what makes you human. Yeah. I think I got that again from that hideous strength. Mm-hmm. Um, he Merlin, of course, is not a bad guy, but he did have a lot of trafficking with spirits back in, you know, Roman yeah. England that while not actually bad at the time was still not good for you. Mm -hmm. And Lewis presents it as having blunted and coarsened him uh, a bit, Um, damaged him. Yeah. Mentally even. Right. Uh, And, and it wasn't, you know, sin, but it was still not good for you. Right. Um, And so I think I seized on that idea so that I always present magic as sometimes uh, my protagonists do use magic against magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, the not a not a good idea at all, really. But um, <laughs> and it is damaging. Right. Uh, it uh, it does um, cost them. As a matter of fact, you see that in Stephen King, in of all people, in um, <laughs> Firestarter. Mm-hmm. The little girl's father is able to sort of force a perception on somebody, like give them a one dollar bill and say, "There's a hundred yeah, and force the guy to see it as a hundred dollar bill. But he gets headaches and nosebleeds and mm-hmm. uh, kind of brain fog. Yeah. Um, it, again, it's the idea that, yeah, you can do this stuff, but not without cost right and i would like to say not without spiritual cost not just physical cost right right and certainly i would uh no more have a ouija board in the house than i would have plutonium um (laughs) at one point for last call i had to buy a tarot deck oh yeah yeah the rider weight deck where there's a picture enigmatic mysterious picture on every card (laughs) Mm mm-hmm because I needed to look at all the pictures, but I would never shuffle it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, the the person who designed those cards, who like painted them, I think Ryder Waite or whoever, um, the whoever the female one of those, I don't remember who it was, but uh, I think she converted to Catholicism ah. and opened a, um, a house for retired priests, I think, um, ah. towards the end of her life. That's very interesting. Yeah. yeah because... Well, yeah, I would think, you know the way a, a average, curious, secular citizen, uh, people these days, for example, talk about spirituality all the time. Yeah. Uh, which I don't quite exactly know what they mean. Are they are they conceding the existence of supernatural? But <laughs> I could see I could see how somebody like that would drift into things like Ouija boards. Oh yeah. And perceive. Uh, that is uh, horrifyingly dangerous and recoil into what would look like the most valid alternative, which I think would be Catholicism Mm -hmm. looked at objectively. (laughs) Um, Who wrote the book, the neuromancer? Uh, Not. Um, Yeah. uh, Turn of the century. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Uh, Benson? No. Uh, Mike... Oh, the Neuromancer or the Necromancer? 
Oh, sorry, Necro. I yeah, yeah. Um, ah, no, Necro, Necro. Not Robert Hugh <laughs> Benson. Yeah, yep. Yeah, yep. Uh, that had a nice picture of that young man drifting into that stuff without really being blameable. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of. Well, if you didn't know any better, right? Yeah, you, you might very well try that out. Mm-hmm. Um, no, Neuromancer is a book by William Gibson. That's, that's right. what. It, yeah, yeah. And I can't remember his name. <laughs> um, but yeah, I could I could see somebody, especially in uh, atheistical times like right now, <laughs> bla- blamelessly stumbling into that stuff. Right. And is that uh, so? Uh, some of your villains are like that, um, and I think C.S. Lewis said, you know, there are two ways to screw around with with demons. One of them is to be um, to not believe they exist, right? The atheist, and the one of the, one of them is to take them too seriously, so the magician. Um, and I think a lot of your, I mean, some of your protagonists, at least initially, like they are kind of the C.S. Lewis such like atheist magician, like. Um, uh, Angelica Elizalde in expiration date when she's yeah. doing the seances <laughs> to help good people point. a good parallel. Yeah. Yeah. Help people, um, uh, make right with their dead loved ones. she doesn't believe in it, of course, it's just, you know, I, I gotta say that was clever. That was good. <laughs> I liked that a lot. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's therapeutic seances to get them in touch, uh, as it were, <laughs> reconciled with their memory except yeah if you're doing a seance you're running the risk of it actually working right yeah she's like well i'm, I'm a human i'm a secular humanist i don't believe this stuff. you know yeah yeah well you shouldn't have drawn the pentagram on the floor <laughs> yeah yeah um that kind of stuff and then some of your villains are like that too like um i um terracotta from alternate roots really reminded me of frost actually from that hideous strength when he, when Frost was, um, he's a complete determinist, and he, um, he would, he would notice that himself doing things, yes, right? Yes. And he's like, "Oh, that's so interesting. I'll just let my body kind of do this." And no. it was the, de- the ah. basically the demons like possessing him and controlling him, you know. And he, like, this is so fascinating, you know. <laughs> and the terracotta was very similar. Now that you mention it, I must have had Frost in mind with terracotta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if you are a uh, strict determinist, uh, well, Bertrand Russell, very respectable guy, said that it's a delusion to imagine that anything that happens in our minds has any connection to what our bodies do. <laughs> um, that, and, and some modern scientists are trying to prove that when you pick up a drink, mm-hmm. you tell yourself that you meant to do it. But actually, it's it's a fraction of a second after the fact. <laughs> your brain your brain saw that you had picked up a coke and therefore quickly said, "Yes, I I, I meant to do that." <laughs> um, I always thought it would be fun to go up to Bertrand Russell and throw a cup of coffee in his face <laughs> and say, Wait, "Don't blame me." Yeah, it's uh, not my fault. Atoms, atoms have to go where Newton and Niels Bohr say they gotta go. I, I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, so it, there's so many things to talk about. Um, but you mentioned Lovecraft hating the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, and um, quant, you know quantum physics and all of these things um, that you actually incorporate a lot into your fiction. 
to kind of break up. And that's something Dean Kuhn said in that, um, in that essay is that you, uh, people who are willfully ignorant of these things like quantum physics and, and like uh, molecular biology and stuff like that, you incorporate a lot of these things into your fiction as well. Like kind of these super science concepts to not to get rid of cause and effect, but to help readers understand that not every effect, not the cause, the cause of that effect is not always super obvious, you know, why this, this happened. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think an effect I got from Arthur C. Clarke uh, in his book, Childhood's End, <clears throat> is the idea that a truly titanic singularity type event in human history might not only cause waves downstream into the future, but might actually have waves move upstream a little bit. <laughs> So that you get the effect before you got the cause. Yeah. Um, and I've, I think I've sometimes used that. <laughs> um, also, I like taking quantum effects, and which are very, very micro. Yeah. And having them occur in macro situations. Yeah. Um, like uh, in stress of a regard, at one point there's. A gallery with uh, pairs of tall, narrow windows along the wall, and in a ca canal outside, somebody fires a cannon full of shot up at the gallery, and it blows out a pair of windows, but the damage on the wall behind the windows is not just a chaotic mess. It's vertical lines of damage which are <laughs> interference fringes okay which is making grossly macro um what's known as young's two slit experiment where he proved that light is waves because uh you get the waves interfering with each other so you get these vertical uh, rows of light and i thought well that's neat how about let's make it big <laughs> well, uh, instead of just individual light particles, let's make it shot lead balls. <laughs> um, and and I like to think that doing that, even for uh, some people, most people who would not think, oh, that's the young two slit experiment. It at least conveys a sort of unspecific but implicit logic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it made this weird pattern on the wall. Oh, that's got to mean something, huh? <laughs> I mean, that's more interesting than just, you know, uh, ripped up the wall. Right, yeah. Yeah, half the time when I when you have weird stuff in your novels, I don't know what's going on, you know. <laughs> like, it's just a lot of fun, you know, and I'm like, this means something. This means something. This is something's going on here. I don't know what's going on, but I, <laughs> and sometimes I, sometimes I can get a little inkling in there, you know, I'm like, okay. That matches this and earlier in the book. That's, some, that's something. You know? <laughs> and, and I think it's fine if you don't um, think anything more of that weird yeah. pattern of shot on the wall than just it's a weird pattern. Right. I mean, like the plot didn't depend on it. Right. Uh, and I suppose with um, just one's imagination, one could think up, uh enigmatic results like that but um i like i always think well probably there it, 
probably you could claim there was some logical reason. I mean, admittedly, it's not the way the original experiment was done, but probably you could claim there was some sort of uh, reason for it to do that. Yeah. It's like sometimes I'll borrow a mythological effect that strikes me as powerful and put it in a book, even though I don't know what it is or why it seems powerful. <laughs> uh, T.S. Eliot, in his poem, uh, The Journey of the Magi, uh, has the three magi, you know, traveling ultimately to Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And at one point he says, we stopped at a valley uh, temperate below the snow line and there was a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel and hands throwing dice and the sound of a mill wheel in the darkness and a white horse ran by and I thought, okay, okay, what's happening there? <laughs> we got some stuff happening there. Yeah. The mill wheel pounding in the darkness, the, the vines over the lintel, come on. And so I don't know what Elliot had in mind yeah. or what myths he was ringing the bells of, but I just had my character go there and uh, <laughs> experience that. Yeah. I figured, well, whatever effect is happening there um, should ideally happen when I have my character <laughs> encounter it. Yeah. Yes. So you, yeah, you incorporate a lot of mythology into your, well, in your book. Most of the time, more knowing what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but you incorporate a lot of these myths, like, you know, from ancient Mesopotamia or, or you know, from scripture or whatever. Um, and you use them in the, in your stories. How important are these myths for, for people, I guess, for you know, maybe Christians in particular, but for people in general, um, how important do you think these are? I think they're real important. Um, I know Carl Jung got his start as a psychiatrist and noticed that a lot of the dreams his patients told him about were in fact recognizably myths. Hmm. You know, oh, that's Orpheus, uh, that's uh, Theseus and the Minotaur. Yeah. Uh, now, his patients didn't know that. Right. Uh, it's like those stories are somehow hardwired very deep in the common human psyche and um i love the idea um yeah. and so i figure those stories have a kind of electric charge that everybody is susceptible to mm -hmm. and um so if you can if you can weave them into a story uh they're going to deliver the charge to the reader because no matter how sophisticated and uh, reasonable and rational and atheistical uh, the reader might be, they do still have that circuitry very deep in their subconscious, yeah. which is going to respond to it whether they like it or not. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Interesting. So the, yeah, these stories have an effect on us regardless of whether or not we believe in them. Um, yeah, it's like silhouette recognition. Uh, your subconscious says, aha, and your conscious mind says, uh, okay, what <laughs> happened? Um, I remember reading that 
uh, Lon Chaney, a very scary actor from like the 30s, was one time asked, what is the scariest thing that could happen to a person? And he said, scariest thing that could ever happen is a knock on the door at 3 a.m., which right there actually is pretty scary. <laughs> and, and you open the door and there's a clown standing there. Yeah. <laughs> now, I would drop dead. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't matter whether he got like the wrong address for a party. Um, Powers is dead on the threshold. <laughs> um, I think there's something about clowns that matches some silhouette recognition in our subconscious. Yeah. God knows what, you know, <laughs> demons with face makeup uh, <laughs> in the early history of humanity. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, there was three in the morning, specifically at three in the morning. That would be a, yeah, right. Yeah. Not like two uh, o'clock in the afternoon where there put, but maybe would be a party somewhere, but three o'clock yeah, in the then morning. You, you tell them get lost. Yeah, right. But, um, yeah. But I do like the idea that there are, and they show up in mythology, there are relationships and conflicts and effects that are always affected. They're mm -hmm. just universally affected, um, which is why myths survive so well and yeah. why Jung's patients had dreams involving figures and situations from mythology, even though the patients had never heard of them. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, I know, I know C.S. Lewis said that um, when he's talking about myth is that it can be badly told and still have the same effect. Yeah. Yeah. It can be poorly written and badly told and it could still, it could still have that like emotional, like and visceral kind of reaction. Sure. Yeah. You just got to get the silhouette right. Right. Yeah. You just got to get the plots and like the, you know, just what happens and the you know, Orpheus goes down into Hades and um, yeah, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be very, you know, it doesn't have to be very long of a story. It just has, you just have to get the plot points out. It'll still have that same effect on people. Yeah. If, if you can ring those primordial bells. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, also, I love uh, off topic a bit. Um, Lewis's point about pre-Christian mythologies that seem to prefigure uh, Christ and yeah. the New Testament. Yep. And people say, well, look, Christianity, it, it, they just reshuffled a bunch of myths about like Osiris and Mithra and, uh, I don't know, uh, Balder. Um, and I think it's true, and it's certainly much more interesting, that those were early inspired guesses. Yeah. Uh, that those old pagans were not stupid. <laughs> and no. they kind of could intuit what shape salvation would have to take. And it's that childhood's end effect of the big event has ripples that go upstream as well as downstream yeah yeah i think fulton sheen said something kind of similar um where every every uh pagan culture had this like yearning you know yeah you know chesterton, and... chesterton puts it real well uh somewhere he says if you tell me the patagonians had a crucified god if you tell me the american indians had uh, the God who was born of a virgin, he'd say, well, I, I didn't know that, but I'm not surprised. Right. Um, of course they would. Uh, and it's strange to think that all of humanity yearning for the arrival of thing should be considered proof that the thing can't arrive. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And C.S. Lewis said, uh, quoting uh, Thomas Brown, um, being hungry does not prove we have bread, but being hungry does indicate that there must be such a thing as bread. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, having that desire, a lot of a lot of secular scholars will look back at that stuff and, and like you said, they will say, "Oh, look, either you know, Christianity is just a, a mishmash of different myths," and or they'll look they'll look at. Um, like the flood story, right? And they'll go, oh, every culture had a flood story. Therefore, it didn't happen. It's like, well, don't, right, don't right. you think that it's the opposite? <laughs> like, if everybody says yeah. something happened, then if something like it probably happened, right? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I love scholars approaching, for example, uh, the New Testament and saying, let's figure out what really happened with the a priori axiom that the supernatural does not exist. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let me know what you come up with, <laughs> but um, your your rules on arrival are a little bit limiting. They're a little biased. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. It's really ridiculous to think about that. <laughs> so let's just go into the let's just go into the scholarship debunking everything let's just not assume none of it happened like why are you yeah. even studying it then like, i don't understand like why are you, why are you yeah. doing this <laughs> yeah yeah uh yeah given that the supernatural is impossible ergo <laughs> we'll, we'll back up a bit back up a bit yeah, right oh man um so you also incorporate a lot of literature into your literature um like a lot of um obviously you have like the the poems the poetry of like Shelley and, and Keats and you have um in Hide Me Among the Graves you have Christina Rossetti's poems that kind of you kind of use to um kind of I don't know structure the book or or something um kind of reinforce the weird claims yeah yeah and you have like the T.S. Eliot's, Eliot's like the wasteland you, you you have that as like a major um, a major like part of the world of last call. Um, so how do you, how do you use, how do you use, uh, that sort of poetry, that sort of literature, uh, like Alice in Wonderland and expiration date, you know, where it's the old and new Testament right. for ghosts. Like how, where do you come up with that stuff and how do you like factor that in to your books? Well, I guess a couple things. Um, for one thing, it, helps substantiate my claim that this is the real world. This is not an alternate world. Mm -hmm. uh, look, I didn't make this up. Lord Byron said this. Christina Rossetti <laughs> said that. Uh, don't blame me. Right. Um, and it, uh, frankly, it, it, it lends some very nice pieces of color. Uh, yeah. To use a bit of poetry as an epigraph for a chapter, uh, it I'm borrowing uh, literary effects by doing that. Mm -hmm. ah, I get to transplant a bit of you know Wordsworth right into a, a chapter that way, and I it's sort of like adding a soundtrack. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, it 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 mainly is. Uh, to substantiate it, to say, mm -hmm. look, this, this, this really, he really did write this. 
I mean, I, I'm I'm saying he was engaged in these supernatural difficulties, but he did write that. Yeah. And Alice in Wonderland, like you say in uh, expiration date, is a gold mine of such stuff. Yeah. Uh, in fact, somebody said, I wish I could remember who said it. He said, um, Alice in Wonderland is the best book for the layman to understand computer programming. <laughs> but that's because Alice in Wonderland is the best book to explain anything to the layman. <laughs> <laughs> cool. I don't even know what you mean, but I love the sentence. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It fits really well. Um, an expiration date because it like the logic of the ghosts, you know, like when they're kind of like imbecilic and you know, then you have like the complete ridiculousness of Alice in Wonderland and it just, it just ma meshes up so well. Um, that's why I'm like, is there yeah, something to yeah. this? Does Alice in Wonderland like have some secret code for talking to ghosts or something? <laughs> well, it's the, it's the best book for the layman under, understanding ghosts. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I did borrow from, I believe Chesterton, the idea that if you are being haunted by the ghost of your uncle George, your uncle George doesn't know anything about it. He's in heaven or hell. Mm -hmm. Uh, the thing which is appearing as his ghost is a semi-animate fragment thrown off in the traumatic rupture of soul and body at death. Yeah, yeah. Um, like subatomic particles from some atomic reaction. You get little neutrinos flying off everywhere. Right. And And therefore, I always figure they probably are not bright. <laughs> uh, tend to repeat things um, in expiration date I remember they were always caught by palindromes yeah yeah a, a sentence that reads the same backward or forward they they can't stop doing it they right. just keep you know uh, what was it go hang a salami I'm go hang a salami I'm a lasagna hog <laughs> read it backwards same thing right uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Well then, your ghosts also um, stack up coins. They or they like rearrange coins, and that's actually yes. a, a fairy tale trope of like um, fairy creatures. They'll be, they, they'll. I don't know if it's coins specifically, but they'll they'll like count out um, sand or or sugar or salt. You know, yeah. like they're like, they have yeah. this compulsion to do that. And then yeah. um, when you had that, when you had your ghost doing that in expiration date, I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting because um, that's the same kind of same kind of trope. Yeah. Um, I, I, we knew a couple of, uh, Marines who said they were natural philosophers and, um, they at one point built a giant electric Ouija board hooked up to a <laughs> Tesla coil. And, um, they said they were talking to ghosts all time. And, uh, I said, what do they say? He says, Oh, they want to tell you what lottery numbers are going to win. <laughs> and I said, my God, do you write it down? <laughs> They're telling you what lottery numbers are going to win? He said, They're lying. They don't know what lottery numbers are going to win. But he said, If you asked them how much money you had in your pocket, they would make a guess. Yeah. And they'd be wrong. But 10 minutes later, they would say, No, what you actually have in your pocket. And this time they'd be correct. <laughs> 
And I'm thinking, boy, better you guys than me. I'm not setting foot in your house. <laughs> uh, as you say, in fairy tales, um, in superstition, in uh, lots of cultures, if you've got somebody who's died and you're afraid when you bury him, he's going to come up out of the grave and uh, mess people up. Fill the coffin with beans, <laughs> uh, just pinto beans, uncooked. Yeah. And when he wakes up at sunset and gets ready to go, I don't know, let the air out of people's tires and stuff, um, <laughs> he pauses and thinks, what's all these beans? And then he thinks, I wonder how many there are. And so he starts, I guess, yeah, I got 10 in this pocket and 10 in this pocket. And he spends all night counting the beans. And then the sun comes up and he's, you know, dormant again until the next sundown. And he goes through the same thing. Yeah. I wonder how many beans there's here. <laughs> so they're always kind of, in fact, if you ever look at um, sentences uh, that are supposedly received from ghosts at seances yeah. through mediums. It's always stupid. <laughs> I, I, I mean, they can hardly put a sentence together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you wonder what, why they're even bothering. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, th so that's how I make my ghost. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're, they're very entertaining and they're, they're a little sad too. They're kind of sad creatures. Um, yes. Yes. In yeah. fact, um, I remember, again, I think it was Thomas Brown said, I am not so much afraid of death as ashamed of it. <laughs> yeah. Ashamed of Adam and Eve and the fact that we need to experience it. And so I took the idea that ghosts are ashamed of being dead. When yeah. you meet a ghost, it's like catching somebody naked in the wrong situation. <laughs> yeah. I think that was actually a line from Hide Me Among the Graves, I think. Like, yes, I yeah, believe it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're, they're ghosts are ashamed of being dead, which is, yeah, it's it's sad. They're, they're, they're sad. Um, and you, you capture that really well. So I'll, I'll, I'll go with two more questions. So um, I've been kind of wondering about this, um, but Vickery in um, Alternate Roots, he attends the traditional Latin mass um, specifically. Like you have that in there. And... Um, there's a short story called Through and Through, I think, where it's oh, yeah. a, a, the priest in the confessional and to deal with a ghost who comes in, he has to um, get the traditionally blessed you know, um, oils and um, that, you know, that were done in the older rite or, you know, that, that sort of thing. Do you, uh, I'll just, I'll just ask you, do you attend the traditional Latin mass? Yeah, uh, there's a local church that does actually have the old Tridentine Mass. Oh, wow, yeah. Uh, though our Pope would like to eradicate it. Yeah, that's not, yeah, I, I freak, we, every week we have a, a Latin Mass at our parish that we go to every week, and we're very uh, upset about the recent direction. Um, and so I was just kind of curious, not because of the Pope, but because, <laughs> <laughs> but because, uh, you know, you had that specifically in there, and um, is that something you try to incorporate into your fiction, like the a traditional way of viewing Catholicism when it comes, when it's appropriate in the, to, for the story or. Um... I don't know <laughs> that I've ever thought of it, uh, but yeah, I don't uh, know. It's certainly, just a... <laughs> certainly I would think of uh, traditional Catholicism. Um, 
a one thing I like about the Tridentine Latin Mass is I could go to Mass anywhere, uh, yeah. Germany, France, Spain, uh, you know, Russia. Mm -hmm. And if it's a Tridentine Mass, I know where I am. Right. Yeah. I know what they're saying. I know what it all is. Uh, and it doesn't change. Right. Uh, I hate revisions. You go in and think, what is this? <laughs> oh, we're doing it this way now. Oh, really? Okay. Are we still, um, are we still going to get transubstantiation? You're, you didn't change <laughs> that, did you? Um, so I like, I like the, uh, the fact is that Catholicism is as unchangeable at, at its core as the multiplication table. Yeah. Um, but I hate changing the dressing and implying changes in the core. Right. Uh, it makes it too easy for people to say, like, well, I'm Catholic, but I don't agree with the church about this. Right, right. And it's like somebody saying, I believe in the multiplication tables, <laughs> the, the two, the times two and the times five and the times ten. But I got to say, I don't agree with the times seven. I mean, seven <laughs> times eight. Come on. Nobody knows what that is. I mean, I. I happen to know it's 56, but um, it'd be so much better if it was just like 60. Um, so, yeah, I, I do tend to be traditional Catholic. Yeah. Um, and in that story where the ghost goes into the confessional, mm -hmm. um, I kind of deliberately took the opportunity to make the priest be a very progressive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. An older, older priest, right? I think he was older, more yeah, progressive, the 1970s sort of generation. Yeah, kind of yeah. Sister Corita and Michael rode the boat ashore. Um, oh, man. Uh, but uh, we, we knew a priest who was kind of unfortunately progressive. Mm -hmm. And to go to confession to him, he would just say, like, oh, well, we... we we don't really consider that a sin anymore. <laughs> and I would say, I meant it to be a sin when I did it. <laughs> uh, so it was kind of fun to put that overly liberal mm -hmm. priest in a situation where he was confronted by actual spiritual reality. And, uh, and it was fun having him, decide i can't give absolution to a ghost right uh and instead gives her last rites right yeah now that was a good it was a good uh short story yeah i just was kind of curious so i um thanks for uh sharing that i guess i uh, i don't know i i know gene wolf i think he um I think he had, he, I don't know. I don't know what he, what he, where he attended, uh, if he attended a Latin mass or not. I know when he converted, he, he did. Cause that's what, you know, what the norm was. Um, right, right. And I know he was upset when they changed it. Um, like, I mean, I yeah. was born, so I, I discovered the Latin mass, um, a few years ago with my wife and her family. And we've been attending since then. And we will go to an English mass occasionally if we, if we need to, but, um, we, we just mostly go to the Latin mass. So. Um, yeah, I like, uh, I forget who said it, but it was God's mercy that 
Evelyn Waugh, a Catholic convert, mm -hmm. died like very shortly before the new mass with the kiss of peace and everything <laughs> was instituted. Yeah. Because that would have kicked Waugh right back out again. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, yeah. I remember my, my wife said she went to this priest friend of ours and she tells him her sins and then she said when he started to talk she said shut up <laughs> absolve me or don't but don't talk to me <laughs> wow because <laughs> he would have come up with all the rationalizations <laughs> it wasn't really a sin it's really wow just absolve me. I don't want to hear your excuses yeah. for my behavior. Yeah, I, I didn't hear, come here to deal with you. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, that's funny. Um, well, I have one more question, and this is a question yes. I ask every guest. Um, and it's not what well, it wasn't in the list I sent you because it's a bit of a surprise. And feel free to answer this however you want. Um, but I ask this. that My show is called I Might Believe in Fairies because I am agnostic about the existence of such creatures. Um, and I've asked every guest, I try to, if I remember, I try to do it. Um, but I'm going to ask you, Tim Powers, do you believe in fairies? Well, <laughs> what I immediately think of is, um, Arthur Conan Doyle with those, uh, what was it? Not Kensington. Um, yeah. The, with the, the girls, um, in Scotland, is that the, oh yeah. Yeah. The, yeah yep. And, um, what we always read is. Arthur Conan Doyle was shown these photographs ostensibly of fairies. Yeah. And you look at the photographs and you think, that's a cutout drawing. <laughs> that's not a fairy. Right. I mean, I can see pencil lines. <laughs> uh, Arthur Conan Doyle must have been an idiot. But then my second thought is, he was not an idiot. These are not the photographs that were shown to him. Uh, after he said something, people somewhere scrambled and said, for general release, we have to show some that are obviously fake. <laughs> and, and so they drew the little fairies in pencil and cut them out and pasted them in and took a photograph. Yeah. Um, it seems obvious to me that those photographs did not fool Arthur Conan Doyle. Right. If he was fooled by photographs, we have not yet seen them. <laughs> all right <laughs> and so i would say withholding a decision i would i would wait until we're able to see the real photographs that convinced arthur conan doyle all right those were not the ones he saw well it's interesting those those girls um they never uh, they never said that. Um, so eventually, like the you know, they said those photographs that Arthur Arthur Conan Doyle saw were faked, right? Um, but they never said, and they they it, to this day they said that oh no, the fairies were real. They were real. We just couldn't really get photos of them, so we made up these photos, right? But they were real fairies, <laughs> yeah, and they maintained yeah. that up until they died, you know, because they waited until yeah. Arthur Conan Doyle died so they wouldn't embarrass him, right? Um, well, yeah, I think the thing to remember is that Doyle was not an idiot. No, the guy who created Sherlock and, Holmes was not an idiot. <laughs> and therefore, there's something missing in the story about it that we're generally told. Yeah. Well, that 
I'm always surprised by people's answers because some people say, oh, no, like I interviewed Sandra Measle and she's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> and then I interviewed another, um, you know, Richard Rowland and he's like, oh, yeah, they, oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'll say maybe. Yeah, I, I'm, yep, I, same with me. Withholding judgment till I see those pictures. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I don't think I've laughed yeah. this much uh, with any other guests. So um, that's, this has been a lot of fun and I, I, if you want, I'd want to have you on again. Um, yeah, sure. That'd be that'd be great. Um, so yeah, that's that's it. Thanks for coming on my show. Well, it's been a lot of fun, and I bet we could do it again and cover a bunch of stuff we didn't get to tonight. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I would like that, and I I will plan on doing that, but it won't be for a little while. So you can rest easy. Well, well, well. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of I Might Believe in Fairies. Please leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please follow me on Twitter at Aaron Erber and like me on Facebook. If you're excited to see where the podcast is going and want to offer some support for the project, you can find me on Patreon. Music is by Alexander Nakarada, and podcast art was designed by my wonderful sister-in-law, Linnea Kisby. Until next time, talk to you soon.